Welcome to the Bloomberg Markets Podcast. I'm Paul Sweeney, alongside my co-host, Matt Miller. Every business day, we bring you interviews from CEOs, market pros, and Bloomberg experts, along with essential market-moving news. Find the Bloomberg Markets Podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts and at Bloomberg.com slash podcast. Now let's talk to the founder of Mountain. This is a company that builds advertising software for brands to drive um, conversations, conversions, revenue, site visits, all you can uh, imagine, really. It's basically a digital uh, advertising tool. And it's so important, um, the, uh, the Apple ecosystem to this world. Mark Douglas is the CEO and founder of Mountain. He joins us now to talk about what's happened just now with the App Store and Epic in this court ruling. Um, Mark, give us your take first off on, um, on how important the App Store is, the Apple App Store for, you know, the entire business. Yeah, so the, the, obviously the iPhone is arguably one of the most important devices ever created. And the way you get software on there is the App Store. And Apple, um, people forget the first iPhone, you could only use software from Apple. So when Apple opened that up and allowed people, anyone, to create software for the iPhone, they created this App Store and they charged a 30% fee to developers for any revenue that's created on it. And so this ruling starts to essentially possibly shake loose that 30% fee, which I think arguably is really excessive. So, Mark, I guess Apple's contention has been that, yes, it's 30% is by some measures excessive, you know, from the app developer's perspective. But boy, for 30%, you get access to Apple's 2 billion device users. That's huge in terms of value to uh, these app developers, no? Yeah, but the Apple also has the Mac, and I get in access to all Mac users for free. <laughs> so the and all and the software is often very similar, and you know the means of distribution there is the internet. So I think the the ruling here. I think also one thing to keep in mind on this ruling: there were ten claims against Apple. Apple won nine of the ten claims, and and it, it lost one of the claims, which I think has people um, you know kind of very excited about the possibility that the, the app store fees are going to go away. But um, I think people are just excited because Apple lost. I, the, the, this is not a complete loss for Apple. It's not a complete win for developers, but it starts to make a dent in, in what I think is clearly, in my opinion, is a monopoly, but the judge did not rule as a monopoly. They just ruled that was unfair competition and developers can now make changes that potentially even, you know, retain some of that 30%. If I'm a user, I want the money for that app to go to the person that created it. I want not to Apple. That, you know, that's my personal perspective. Well, let me make this personal for a second, because I always pull out of your bio, Mark, that you grew up in the Bronx near Yankee Stadium. And, you know, you were a, a normal person and you went out west and started a bunch of um, your own companies and now have created this incredibly successful business. And you're living the American dream. You fly to work in your own private plane every day. I don't know if you really do that, but you could if you wanted to because you're a pilot. So isn't this um, a story also uh, from Apple's perspective of private property, of the American dream, of, you know, a company that builds something and gets to control how it's used. 
Right, yeah, and Apple sells me and you know, millions, if not hundreds of millions of other people, a devi- an incredible device, and we gladly, well, not gladly, but we pay over $1,000 to buy this <laughs> device. And then, and, then, and, and then they say, oh, and by the way, if you want to use anything on that device, we're going to take 30% of that also, even though we didn't create what you're using. Yeah, but good and for so them, right? That, they, they they made the device. They made the store. That's that's a, a good for good for <laughs> Apple. Shouldn't they be able to do what they want with their own stuff? Well, maybe, but that's also kind of a classic example of a monopoly, and, and, that, and that was the argument that was made here. And the judge didn't go so far as to say it's a monopoly. Um, and monopolies are generally anti-competitive. There's not another competing app store, for example, with that, you know, an Apple devices um, and of excessive profit. And I think this ruling will potentially have some dent on Apple's profit if you're an investor. That's why this one of the reasons this stock dropped. But, you know, the ruling is, is should Apple take a cut of the whole ecosystem? And the ruling is, is that potentially not. And um, but yeah, Apple's a great success story. They've invested a lot, and well, quite frankly, they make a lot without taking out a developer. Pocket. Well, so is so is Mountain. We were talking, by the way, earlier about um, your acquisition of Ryan Reynolds' Maximum Effort. Um, such a cool agency, and yeah, um, we were each giving our favorite Ryan Reynolds movies. What, what's yours? Just out of curiosity, Mark, what's what's your favorite Ryan, Ryan Reynolds production? Um, I, <laughs> I'm terrible with Napoli, but Ryan asked me this question over dinner a few months ago, and it was um, the vampire movie he was in. Oh my God, I'm blanking on the name. This is so embarrassing. But it's not. Uh, it's not. Uh, it's because I don't remember the vampire movie either, and I feel like I've seen everything that he's been in. <laughs> well, I think the movie he made with. Um, the wedding movie he made. and That's I'm what I'm just, talking like, about, The Proposal. Yeah, I loved the, it, too. The Proposal was amazing. Yeah, it was a great movie. I, I watched that a few months, like two months ago. And I've seen a lot of Ryan movies, but I did a little refresher course once I was put on the spot. And he didn't ask that question, in fairness to, to him. He doesn't go around going, which of my movies do you like? He did someone else at the table ask. Me. So, ah, okay. Anyway, yeah. our, our producer, Sarah Lives, Lives, he told me that Blade, Trinity is the vampire movie he's done. So um, that's correct. Uh, Owner, Mark Douglas, founder of Mountain. Let's get over to David Kotok right now, chairman and chief investment officer at Cumberland Advisors. And it's always great to get David's thoughts on uh, the markets and the economy. David, what, um, what do you make of this Resurgence of the virus, along with the um, incredible resistance of American people to vaccines, not just Americans, but, you know, in the Western world, there's such resistance to these vaccines. It looks like it's going to the pandemic may last longer than we may have anticipated. Yeah, I fear it will. Um, um, And of course, there's mixed views of this Uh, vaccine hesitancy is something that we have seen in the past. We don't see a way to resolve it. I I found a quote from Robert Kennedy in 1964, and he said, one-fifth of the persons are against everything all the time. And I guess that characterizes uh, the human condition. So 
we don't vaccinate, we get the results. I'm a little worried. Uh, Mike Osterholm in his... By, by the way, podcast, David, it's interesting because his son yeah, um, is one of the biggest anti-vaxxers who supports conspiracy theories about things like, you know, Bill Gates working with um, the global elite to inject us all with like 5G nanobots. It's so true. What a quirk of fate. You know, why can't somebody come up with something that says ivermectin has a Chinese chip instead of Moderna? <laughs> I, I mean, we have a crazy world, and that's the nature of the human being. And unfortunately, what that does is extend the pandemic, and it makes it worse. It gives more time for more mutations. Uh, I was saying Mike Osterholm in his podcast issued a warning because we're going to find out what happens when we open these large school systems. And, of course, we hope and pray that we don't have a lot of sick people. But we're doing it, and that's the nature of the evolution. So I'm, I don't think we're out of the woods on Delta virus. Our positions in our portfolios and our management says this is a pandemic and it's still underway worldwide and it's too soon to declare that it's over. All right. So the pandemic is an issue for you, David, and for these markets. So is China. Um, you know, we've seen the crackdown that China's had on a number of its industries and the impact it's had on Western investors. How do you kind of contextualize that? Well, it, this is uh, interesting. We published on this last week, and, and on our morning call this morning, we had an extensive conversation. Uh, Matt McAleer and Bill Witherell and others on the call about the difference between the A shares and the H shares. And the old days, the H shares, the ADRs, the U.S. capital market rules were, were accepted worldwide as the highest standard. And now it looks like this is a rotation or reversal. And we see Beijing is going to open a Beijing stock exchange for small caps and new startup companies. So what does it mean if China says, we don't need New York, we don't need the capital markets anymore, we're big enough, we're advanced enough, the rules have changed, the game has changed. That's a monumental shift between the two largest economies of the world. We're actually looking at the A shares, and we haven't taken the position yet, but we're looking at the A shares side, and we're underweight China, and it's really in the H share side that we're underweight. So uh, this will be fascinating to see how this turns out. It's huge. Two largest economies in the world face off with each other. Yeah, and George Soros, I thought, had an interesting opinion piece. I, I wonder what your take is. He was basically saying, um, you know, put aside the, the, the profit motive for a second. You can't be supporting this anti-democratic regime from a moral standpoint. Well, that, that's, a, that's a debate. In fact, you know, there's, there are ETFs which are uh, built on ESG standards and governance. They would say stay away from China. Um, th there is a, a, the behavior of large institutions, Soros, Kathy Ark. What do you do? Do you go there? Don't you go there? Uh, where do you draw the line between the profit and the ethics or morals and how do you do it? And are there ways to do it so they are aligned? Because, and that's a difficult 
one for me personally because I'm involved in policy organizations. And in the policy organization, you want the best outcome for the world. And I'm a money manager, and I have clients, and they say, hey, your job is to make a profit for me. And so there's a tension between those things, a very profound question for the financial services industry. Hey, David, thank you so much for joining us. As always, we always appreciate your perspective. David Kotak, Chairman and Chief Investment Officer of Cumberland Advisors, over about $4 billion in assets under management, and he is located today out in Colorado. Good for him. All right, we've got markets this year hitting nearly uh, all-time highs, nearly on a, on a daily basis. Yet we have Wall Street strategists coming out with increasing caution. Let's get uh, a view from the street, if you will. Katerina Simonetti, Senior Vice President and Private Wealth Advisor for Morgan Stanley Private Wealth Management, joining us on the phone from the town of Brotherly Love. That would be Philadelphia. Katerina, thanks so much for joining us. What are you hearing from your clients as you talk to them over the last uh, several weeks and months? Well, thank you for having me on the show. And uh, you're right. It's, um, you know, it's been crazy market and investors can't ignore the fact that S&P 500 is up over 20 percent um, so far for the year. And as exciting as it might be, you know, seeing your portfolio go up this much, you know, it also raises concerns and investors are naturally worried about the economy's staying power. Um, they're looking at the position of their portfolio and they're uh, hearing about the negative impact on the future earnings of the companies based on everything they're seeing, including the labor shortages, price pressures, supply chain interruptions. You know, it's something that we see every day. You know, there's a lot of talk about inflation and it's one thing talking about it theoretically. And another thing is when the consumers and investors see the increased cost of goods and services, the normal basket, you know, that is something that is their day-to-day experience. So naturally, you know, it's something that on our side, from the investment advice perspective, we are advocating de-risking portfolios. We're advocating uh, taking profits, reasonable profits within uh, certain parts of the portfolio, specifically when it comes to the market indexes. Like this would be a great time to take profit from S&P 500, from Russell 2000, mm-hmm. and reposition into individual equities and very carefully selected um, specific sectors. Like sectors so it's time to like pick stocks. I mean, Lisa Shallot was on with us last week, and she said a 10 to 15 percent pullback isn't unlikely by the end of the year. I agree with her 100 percent. You know, as a matter of fact, like everything that we're hearing from the U.S. corporations is that all of the pressures that I already mentioned are going to be resulting in the earnings that are not going to be quite as exciting as what we have been seeing so far. There's a lot of negative pressures and 10 to 15 percent correction in this space would be very much expected. But it also presents, you know, great buying opportunity for investors as long as they are strategically prepared for that. So, Katarina, if I want to de-risk my portfolio, how do I do that? Do I just raise cash or how do I do that? 
I would take profits from the broad market sectors, profits from S&P 500, from Russell 2000, and look specifically at sectors that are well positioned for this environment, sectors like healthcare, sectors like financials, like consumer staples. We're less excited about consumer discretionary, for example, because we feel like the, the buying power of consumer went down. Stimulus checks already went out. You know, there, there are no, not that many of them are expected to go forward. And all of this discretionary purchases that we saw initially happening are really subsiding right now. We see a lot of appetite for services still, but coming back to the sectors that I've mentioned, healthcare, for example, is a perfect sector to be. There's a lot of pent-up demand in that space, both pharmaceutical companies and healthcare in general. Financials are historically positively correlated for rising interest rate environments. So banks, um, payment facilitators are very well positioned. So again, we we'll have to look at valuations. We have to look at future earnings. We have to look at the overall positioning of these individual equities within their sectors. But this is a great time to pick up some high-quality positions and be ready for a market pullback and be ready to you know, have some cash on the sidelines in order to be making the strategic purchases. What uh, when you look at individual stocks, what are you looking at? What do you like here, um, or or how do you go ahead and screen for those? We we look at quality. You know, we look at the valuations, the earnings positioning. In other words, you know, when we are discussing all the cost pressures, there are certain sectors and certain stocks that are someone desensitized to this risk. So that's where security selection comes into play. You know, this is not, you know, there are going to be times, again, when we look at broad market indexes and they will make a lot of sense. But right now, you know, looking at quality, looking at dividend yields, looking at just overall how is a certain position, a certain, a certain company positioned within their overall sector, what is their competitive advantage, this is the time to, to make this deep dive analysis, you know, and know what you own. Going into this market, this mid-cycle transition as we see it, there is going to be a lot of volatility, there is going to be a lot of noise, and knowing what we own, having higher quality portfolios, um, having this, this very thoughtful type of asset allocation, this is the time for that. Katarina, just 30 seconds. Do you recommend any bonds in your portfolio? We got the 10-year at 1.3%. Absolutely. There's always time for bonds in the portfolio. This is like when you're building a house, you absolutely need that foundation. You know, this is our uh, risk management. But with bonds, just like with stocks, this is the time to look at quality. And this is the time to make sure that the bond positioning of the portfolio makes a lot of sense. You know, get away from high yield, get away from those higher risk exposures in bonds, you know, and look at a very, very high quality uh, strategic positioning in that sector. But they all Always makes sense in the portfolio. Katerina, thanks so much for joining us. Katerina Simonetti, there, a private wealth advisor, a senior VP at Morgan Stanley Private Wealth Management. Great to get your outlook on the market, especially as um, we bounce along the top here. It's time maybe to take some profits. Katerina tells us this is Bloomberg. Let's get over to Matt Maley now, Managing Director and Chief Market Strategist at Miller Tayback. And uh, there's a number of things that uh, I want to get to with you, Matt. But I want to start off with um, rates. We're looking at a 10-year that's now coming back down to 132. And it has looked like 
since Jackson Hole, it was rising from 126 um, and headed for 140. Where, where do you see rates and why? Well, I mean, the, yeah, they, they have been climbing here. It's, it's very interesting because we had that, you know, that period from last August, August of 2020 through March, where obviously they were trending higher from this, you know, crazy historic low level. And then, of course, we went for four or five months there from March uh, to uh, early August uh, where it was going down. Now they're creeping back up. I think they're uh, poised to go higher. I mean, this whole issue with inflation, uh, I think, is a, is a big concern. And you know, I'm looking at the 1.37% level. That was the high we saw a couple of times in August and then once uh, just you know, a little over a week ago. Uh, but the real number is going to be 1.4 because you always need to see more of a, more than just a slight move uh, above any uh, key resistance level. But Matt, and I'll, I'll so pose- 1.4, that's going to be a problem. I'll pose a John Farrow question for you. Do we get to 2% or 1% first? <laughs> well, I mean, the thing is, I, I, I definitely think we get to 2% first. Uh, the one thing, of course, is that we're in the seasonally uh, uh, tough time for the stock market. People get worried. Uh, if there's a, you know, a, a severe correction rather than just a mild one, uh, you'd have flight to safety. That may take us down to 1%. But I, I just don't see that from happening. I think we could very well see a correction, but not one that's in it that low. And then, uh, uh, and I do think that the rate, I think the change, if we get above 1.4% uh, in the 10-year, that's going to sh- signal important change in, in, in the near-term trend for, for interest rates. That's going to be important. Hey, Matt, um, you know, markets, uh, equity markets uh, hitting uh, new highs seemingly on a daily basis. Yet we've seen uh, Tom Keene this morning was just pointing out in his email inbox over the weekend, a lot of Wall Street strategists getting more and more cautious here. How do you think about these equity markets? Um, Again, this wall of worry, uh, everybody's been climbing it, but are we getting a little too high? wall of worry has been called. Yes, exactly. And uh, yeah, it's, it's funny because as more people get more concerned, you, you, you tend to see that they say there's too many bears around, and that, that should actually be a, a you know a, a contrary or contrarian indicator and, and, and be bullish for the market. But I do understand why people are coming more more concerned. I mean, I'm just thinking, and I'm in that boat. I mean, look at just what what we saw again today, where the market opened very strongly, uh, and now it's sold off. It's it's, it's not down. It's down uh, unchanged. Although the, the Nasdaq is down, uh, but that's a definite change. You know, we've seen that for a couple of days in the last week. You know, we really saw it almost every day last week. We're seeing it again today. And we used to see just the opposite, where the market opened down and then rallied into the end of the day. And so this kind of change in trend is, has got some people worried, and, and, and rightfully so. I just think that with the concerns over inflation and maybe even stagflation, uh, uh, those aren't good for markets. And, uh, you know, again, corrections are normal and healthy and nothing to worry about, but uh, uh, do people do, do need to be careful about them. But do we expect, do you expect a correction? So many people have come out from Deutsche Bank to Morgan Stanley to Goldman Sachs saying it's time and, um, you know, maybe 10 to 15 percent. Yeah, I don't want to sound too alarming, but the, the, the one problem that we get, we get is if we get to 10 to, 10 to 15 percent, uh, you're, you're, well, if we get to 10 to 12 percent, I think you get to 15 to 20 percent. And I do think there's a good chance of that. And the reason why I say why, why it would get there, uh, why it would uh, accelerate, is because of this massive levels of leverage in the system. You know, this whole thing with margin debt. Margin debt isn't a problem when it's going up. It's when it rolls over. Well, sure enough, in July, it started to roll over a little bit. If, it start, if the market's down, people don't get margin calls until the market's gone down a certain amount. So if the market goes down 10%, it's almost certainly going to kick in some margin calls, and therefore it'd be a little bit uh, more severe. Uh, so it could be as much as 15 to 20%. That may sound like a lot and alarming, but I think if people raise just a little bit of cash right now, then you're going to be, one, you're going to be the one who keeps your head when others around them are losing theirs or being forced to sell, and you're going to be able to pick up some unbelievably great bargains. 
Yeah, that's kind of where I wanted to go, Matt. If I wanted to get a little bit more, if, I, if I'm if i thinking about the next move in this market could be a 10% or so move to the downside, do I raise cash? Do I just rotate into some safer names? How do I prepare for that? Well, I think, again, I, I do think raising cash is, is a good idea. And again, it's not saying, oh my gosh, you're going to miss this move. It's like, we're not saying going to 20% or 50% cash, and just maybe 5 to 10% cash. And it's not just because you can take advantage of it, but psychologically, I, and especially for individual traders, it's really, really helpful because you are sitting there going, oh my gosh, uh, I, I don't have any. I don't have any cash. Uh, the market's going down. It may go down more. I've got to sell, and they end up selling at the exact wrong time. If you have a little bit of cash, even if it's only five to ten percent, you're going to be much more. Even if you don't get the exact bottom, uh, once the bottom's in, you're going to be willing to buy rather than selling. It. You know, so in other words, you're going to be a buyer rather than a seller at the at the right time. And most other people are going to be selling at the exact wrong time. And so I think raising a bit of cash here is a good idea. Matt, is cryptocurrency here to stay? I mean, does it make sense for an investor um, to allocate 1% of his or her portfolio to Bitcoin, Ethereum, etc.? Well, you know, it's it, it certainly seems to be here, here to stay. Um, you know, I'm very bullish on it. On a longer-term basis, I mean, it's going to run into regulatory issues, and it's going to remain incredibly volatile. Uh, so that's why I think with, these are things that you buy, uh, you know, uh, spread out any kind of purchases. Like you said, you, know, you don't want to be loading up with 25% of your, of your portfolio there, uh, but adding it over time. Uh, and uh, I guess, you know, I kind of look at – we look at all of them, Ethereum probably more closely than others, but let's look at that $30,000 level on uh, Bitcoin. That has been unbelievably key support this year. And if it breaks below that level uh, at any time, uh, you might want to take some chips off the table and, and look for, for a lower basis. Yeah, we're still 15 I like to look grand away from that. That's, that's just 50%. Exactly. Uh, so yeah. we're, we're, that, that's it, but we got, you know, we rallied back. This rally above 40,000 has been very important because it, been, it was stuck in a sideways range. It broke out of that range. It got overbought. It's settling back in, but it's nice and stable. Uh, I think the thing, it, 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 the upside is still Still pretty good here, uh, and uh, I think over a long-term basis, again, ease into it. Uh, you don't you don't have to be uh, you know money a little money in every month, and, and and like I said, keep that to you know three to five percent of your portfolio. All right, Matt, thank you uh, so much for joining us. We always appreciate getting your thoughts and perspective. Matt Maley, managing director and chief market strategist at Miller Tabak, also the founder of the Maley Report, joining us on the phone from Newton, Mass. Patriots lost, I believe, in the first week, so can't be too happy up there. Uh, but, Matt, we've kind of got a market here that's, you know, we got the Dow and the S&P uh, higher, uh, the NASDAQ pulling back, but um, still pretty steady as she goes. This is Bloomberg. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Markets Podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Matt Miller. I'm on Twitter at MattMiller1973. And I'm Paul Sweeney. I'm on Twitter at PT Sweeney. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide at Bloomberg Radio.